You're listening to Abstract. Before we hop into things, just a quick sneak peek on what you can expect to hear on today's episode. So my guest is Shauna, who is a hobby gal like myself. Shauna is the first of hopefully many graduate researcher, business owner, hybrid guests that we'll have on the podcast. She's studying how stress and anxiety can affect decision-making skills, and we talk about how to reduce injury risk in your athletes using a psychological intervention program. This includes mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy, and imagery. We talk about the psychological aspects following a season or career-ending injury, about mental conditioning in professional athletes, mindfulness in athletes, imposter syndrome, which is experienced by many graduate students, the stress injury model, and the fact that you should all be training to move better, whatever stage of life you're currently in, 20 years old, all the way up to 60 and beyond. So with all that said, let's go. My guest today is Shauna Erickson, an international student from California. Shauna is a certified athletic trainer and has been practicing for eight years. She has a master's of science degree focusing on sports conditioning and has developed a passion for injury prevention during her experiences working on the sidelines of sporting events. So much so that she decided to pursue her PhD and contribute to this area of research in sports medicine. Her dissertation focuses on the psychological aspects of injury prevention. She's looking at what psychological symptoms predispose athletes to increased risk and what types of interventions reduce that risk. Currently, she's implementing injury prevention programs with women's soccer and rugby teams and will hopefully be working with even more teams next year. In addition to her studies, she works part-time as a performance coach at Premier Performance. However, since the spread of COVID, she's launched her own business of virtual coaching called Movement Matters. I'm sure we'll talk about that shortly. She developed a program that focuses on all aspects of being a complete athlete, which ranges from mindset, strengthening, and recovery to sleep, relationships, and leadership. Injury prevention involves all aspects of life, not just the obvious things like physical limitations. So without further ado, let me welcome Shauna Erickson onto the podcast. Shauna, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Jeremy? Doing great. Thank you so much for joining me this lovely, sunny morning. Um, oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> there, was, there was one last section of the introduction that you sent to me earlier, which included yes. an extremely exhaustive list of hobbies, which I love. As a hobby man myself, I really appreciate when people just busy themselves with too many things in their free right? time. So um, we're going to play a little game, which is uh, let's have Shauna actually list out the hobbies that she transcribed for me, and we'll make sure she hits all of them. So let's go. <laughs> Um, well, well, starting with the one I just did, actually, I went for a run. Nice. I'm very uh, active in strength training. We've been doing home workout programs over the COVID catastrophe. Um, I do a little bit of hiking. I haven't done much hiking while being in Quebec because I've been busy with school and whatnot. I have a history of backpacking. I also like to, I learned how to ski this past season. I'm uh, excelling rather quickly, my coach boyfriend would say. Uh, I've been snowboarding for several years and I just picked up mountain biking last season, which I'm also getting pretty aggressive at. I hope to compete in a couple of races this summer if they oh, are allowed to go on. Yeah, more, more enduro, like I got hooked on downhill, but it's not much downhill around here. So I, uh, I'm getting really good at doing the enduro climbs and descents. So I used to play water sports. I played water polo. I grew up water skiing. Um, tried a little bit at wakeboarding. Okay. Um, That's I tough. like to 
Yes, it is. I've tried and that a couple times. The, it's you would tricky. think the boat would do most of the work, right? But no, no getting up is, has to be the hardest part. Right. Uh, well, humans yeah, were so. clearly not uh, built for wakeboarding. We had to figure out that <laughs> that muscle movement. It's not a natural way of, of no. getting your body to go from not moving to moving. We don't really do exactly. That. And letting some but something else pull you, right? <laughs> oh yeah, it's 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 a very weird feeling. You're you're almost all the way through. So okay. after water sports, what else do we have? I well, I mean, as a student, I'm always doing a lot of reading. But sometimes I manage to do like fun reading, which right now kind of revolves around more kind of sports science related things, strength training um, and business. So like I'm listening to audiobooks of uh, a lean startup. Um, okay. So just trying to figure out how to get more business savvy because it's not really like my main life focus. So Right. Um, this would be then, for movement matters as a business? Yes. Or, okay. Yes. I like doing coffee dates. I haven't done any on Zoom yet, but I like meeting uh, people that I meet through clubs and organizations. And well, if, if I get to know them more or if I like want to gossip and just dive into life, like I, let's go get some coffee. Right. <laughs> let's go to our respective kitchens, make coffee right. for ourselves, return to Zoom. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, it's um, doable. And then and then after all of those sports, um, we usually like to treat ourselves with a good IPA beer, which is super refreshing mm -hmm. um, and is why we ride or do sports in the first place, right? Right. 18 plus, <laughs> uh, drink responsibly. Well, and then I grew up in the realm where I could drink legally till I was 21. <laughs> yes, true. You so, hold out. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's um, great. And then, yeah, I think the last one was... Uh, at the end of like the evening or a really hard day, I usually try to stave off till the weekends, but I like to enjoy a um, nice glass of whiskey or uh, like a dark gin. Wow, okay. Sounds like you got it all figured out then. Sometimes. That's great. So I guess before we continue to, uh, to, to truck through and talk more about your research, I guess if uh, this is for the listeners right now, we're dealing with a very dynamic individual who knows how to have fun, who <laughs> likes to push herself physically, and mentally, that's, uh -huh. that's, that's always the duality in sport. And yes. so I'm curious to maybe hopefully learn of, over the next hour about how the skills and the mindset you develop as an athlete has potentially helped you as a PhD student. For those who have not begun to embark on a graduate career, it definitely requires uh, a lot of focus, a lot of determination, and there's, uh, of course, a, a big element of independence. And so I think a lot of these things really fit into the mind of an athlete as well. So with that said, that the fact that you mentioned all these hobbies, it almost sounds like you, you wouldn't even have time to work on any of your research if you wanted to accomplish all of these in a seven-day period. So how do you, Shauna Erickson, manage to accomplish all of these things and also complete a PhD. Funny that you asked because I've always kind of looked back on the things that I've been able to accomplish, especially like uh, previously I did my master's degree, but that was all online and I was working full time. So I was kind of already preconditioned to be able to handle simultaneously a lot of things at one time. And I don't think I've ever worked less than three jobs at a time. So school was full-time in my undergrad. I had a part-time job as a liquor clerk in Albertsons, and I was also serving tables and bartending. Um, wow. So I've always tried to maximize my time and also had multiple sources of income. So when I started like getting into my career and, you know, 
first I wanted to get a job where I was going to learn the ways of athletic training because I mean undergrad somewhat prepares you we're a clinical program and now it's become a master's program only but uh like until you get experience is kind of like how you really learn how to be able to establish your practice as an athletic trainer. So after working in the field for a few years and working uh, as an independent contractor for several sports organizations and youth club sports, things like that, um, I was starting to notice gaps where my services could really be beneficial towards uh, either youth athletes, young adult athletes, or even the parents that are sending their kids to these organizations and giving them answers of what to do, how to rehab injuries, how to make sure that they're not coming back too soon, how to manage a concussion, how to recognize one. So just a multitude of different areas where people just were lacking know-how or knowledge of what to do. And so that's how kind of Movement Matters made its debut, I guess, and manifested a couple years ago, but didn't really actually like launch monetarily until now. Um, when I had the opportunity where I'm currently just working on one paper that I'm in its last couple of revisions to be able to submit. And then in between edits and revisions, I'm really like trying to dive into as much like business uh, promoting and things that I can get done, Uh, which is good because I actually have about six private clients so far. That's great. Um, When did you open up officially? April. Okay. Yeah. Mid-April. And then I did my complete athlete program last uh, fall at a high school in New Hampshire. I uh, was able to manage that program, get it planned. And in the fall, I was implementing injury prevention programs with the teams, doing the stats class and uh, also doing more research for this paper. So, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So do you want to tell me a bit about the kind of research that you were doing, Uh, I guess, maybe last semester leading up to now? Yeah, so the whole area is looking, you know, like you said, uh, when you introduced me is kind of like the psychological symptoms that predispose athletes to injury. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that stress and anxiety are kind of those like top two symptoms um, that have physiological effects, which can inhibit like decision making skills under stressful situations. Um, So not knowing how to react, uh, a lot of athletes don't really know how to acknowledge that they have anxiety um and like what resources they can use to help cope with those things and manage it well so um my research has been really focusing on that this paper that i'm writing is about injury prevent um psychological interventions used to prevent injury so using a mindfulness training program uh cognitive behavioral therapy um for stress management purposes Um, And then diving into other like imagery, there's research that supports that imagery works to reduce injuries. Um, And most of the imagery, you mean like, like having a positive self image? No, imagery as in um, a sports psychologist will take you through uh, events um, to see how you react and how you can plan to prepare for those. And a lot of times it's actually been used for sports performance because a lot of uh, athletes will suffer from com- competition anxiety, which is another category. Wow. Well. Yes. That's, yeah. that's, that's, I feel like that's something that a lot of people don't think about, especially when they're watching professional sports. It's yep. almost to a certain degree, there's a level of disconnect. Like you're watching a film and it almost feels like maybe even pre-recorded or just everyone's doing their own stereotype thing. The, if, if you're watching football, the wide receivers are running really far and, and, and that's all it is. There's just a, 
physical component. People are getting bashed in the head. People are passing pucks and balls and there's a yeah. whole world <laughs> happening inside the head of every single player. I, I think it's really interesting you're taking that approach. From your experience, what has been the most detrimental? Um, well, I would say like the most researched area is the psychological aspects following a, a, a catastrophic injury. So someone that sustains a season, in, season ending or career ending injury. Uh, so like an ACL rupture that has to be surgically managed. Um, a, a very severe concussion that can take you out for a couple of seasons. Um, those just are extremely psychologically uh, costly and um, you can like witnessing athletes go through these things is the most heartbreaking thing I've ever been like part of I could I would say mm -hmm. but also having the capacity to be able to help them rebuild um, re-strengthen get back to the field still be able to feel like they're a part of the team like there, there's so many aspects that go into that part of it, just post injury. So that's why I, I'm very passionate about getting on the front end of it to do as much work on the preventative side as we can to keep those things from happening. I mean, it's not ever going to be a hundred percent guarantee because it's sports. And also if you're in a contact sport, there's really not a surefied way to make sure that you don't sustain an injury by getting pummeled. So yes. <laughs> that means means physics are physics. So, I mean, at one point or another, your body is going to give way, but we can do as much as we can to make sure that you're strong enough to take that hit and be able to rebound quicker than let's say if you weren't doing anything preventative. So, yeah. I, so yeah, that's super interesting. I would just kind of wonder, uh, let's say we take it to the extreme, which it would be like fighting in the UFC. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you are a fighter by trade, you're, you're probably getting hurt more in training than in the fights because these fights don't come around too often. What kind of mindset do you think you would even need in order to be able to make the decision that your entire life is going to be spent getting hit in the face and in parts of your body where there are vital organs just below the skin? Yeah. Um, yeah. You would think that that the people who end up taking these career trajectories would be people who are almost impervious to stress and anxiety uh, because otherwise there's just a complete disconnect. Uh, if I was anxious about my health and I decided to go into fighting, that, that wouldn't make any sense. How do we reconcile those? Like what kind well, of you know, personality profiles do you generally find in like upper level athletes? Do they still exhibit um, anxiety the way that an average person would? Yes, but no. And like, like, like my uh, like future father-in-law says, way, way, but no, no, me, me way, something like that in French, mm -hmm. whatever. No, but we yes. may know. We may know, yeah. <laughs> so with fighters, so like I had a part-time experience about a year's worth in MMA, um, where I was doing like the grappling and the Muay Thai and all of that, and. Uh, the place was owned by an MMA fighter. And so I also worked for a chiropractor that uh, treated MMA fighters. So when they would come into the clinic, like it was always fun to like kind of pick apart their brain and be like, what makes you like want to do something where you're going to get hit? Um, and I did roller derby for a little bit. So I know very well that I'm going to anticipate my share of falls and hip thrusts and yeah. just elbows and everything. So honestly, like with fighting, it's got a martial art base, right? So a lot of martial arts contain that kind of like inner chi focus where you have to have a lot of awareness 
and be able to handle stressful situations, especially for a long period of times, because you never know how long the fight's going to last. And you have to have that mental clarity the entire time. So I think they do a lot of mental conditioning, to be honest with you. I haven't actually like personally trained an MMA fighter. Right. Um, but I, I could speak from just knowing like what's involved in the sport and the demands and everything else that, and where it comes from is like a very mentally focused sport. And I think once you get to that mental part, the hits and the blows have some pain, but on a certain level, they stop feeling it um, until the end, right? Like the next day when it's probably going to be really hard to walk or move. So I think they just do a lot of mental conditioning beforehand and know that that's the consequence of participating. But they can, but the preventative action that they take is more of the defensive, right? And being able and being strong enough to take the blows where it's only going to be a bruise the next day and not so much as like muscle damaging worse than that. So mm-hmm. yeah. you say that mental conditioning mind. though. Um, I, I don't know if this is something that you know, but uh, for, let's say, a fighter or a professional athlete, if they are working on mental conditioning, are they employing some of the, uh, I guess, psychological, um, how should I say it, like procedures maybe, or uh, like you were saying, uh, CBT, Strategies. right? Mm-hmm. So like, would that be a part of a fighter's um, training regimen to, to to actually maybe go see a therapist and have them, you know, work on imagery and all, all these mm-hmm. kinds of things? Or is that like, is that more of like an after the fact? Um, no, I would like to think that they're imploring um, actual psych- sports psychologists or therapists that have a background in sports, kind of like mental strategies. I think professional athletes, obviously, they have a huge team of sports medicine professionals that they have access to on a daily basis, what the actual practice is, and if every single athlete takes advantage of those things, probably not, Um, and I think that's a big deal, too, but I know personally and with my athletes that I coach, I always try to encourage them to do mindfulness. I ask them, do you meditate? Do you practice yoga? Any type of, um, you know exercise that helps them achieve like inner awareness, like acknowledging emotions, acknowledging, you know, even aches and pains in their body, because not a lot of people are aware of what their body's telling them. So um, giving them those tools to be like, oh, like something's wrong, I should probably ask before this gets worse type of thing. So um, I would I would like to think that athletes at a certain level know better to um, use those resources. But if they do or not, can be. Yet so this seen. whole thing sounds very clinical, but you're not doing a PhD in clinical psychology. No. So I'm, I'm having a bit of a tough time seeing how, let's say, work you would do in a lab or working on a paper matches all these rich experiences you're having with real people experiencing real injury or preparing people to avoid that. Like, how would you even motivate yourself to sit on your own working on a paper when you've already helped so many people and had such, such rich experiences doing that? Like, how do you? So in our undergrad, like in our program and we, our profession is a clinical profession. Like we're an allied healthcare professional and well, that's in the States. I'm not really sure. It's athletic therapy in Canada. We 
have a full class that has to do with sports psychology, um, how to recognize signs and symptoms, um, because we're surrounded by athletes. And most of the time, like I was working in a high school setting and death by suicide is a huge thing in high schools right now. And one of my coworkers actually had an athlete and he was like your star athlete goalie. Um, and he ended up killing himself. And it was, it's kind of like the worst case scenario that you could ever be confronted with. And so that part of our career is where we just, we have a huge impact. We build relationships with our athletes and there's not a lot of evidence surrounding the preventative strategies to keep those things from happening. So my kind of amplifier and driver was to be like, I would like to contribute more. How can I contribute more on a mass scale? And that's kind of developing research, getting it published and putting it in journals that I know a lot of my colleagues read and then sending it to them individually. Like I've sent my paper to a couple of athletic trainers I used to work with and said, what do you guys think about this topic? And they were super intrigued. They were like, we're actually looking into how we can do this because there's a lot of intervention and hotlines for people that may not be athletes going through these issues. But if an athlete were to suffer a concussion, there's a lot of things that are linked to depression and then just a downward spiral where they could never be the same. So, um, I mean, it just, it goes beyond just injuries it's all just as human beings like how do we prevent athletes who are struggling with an additive stress of sports um and being a student or just a high level of performance is um a whole nother whole nother monster i guess sure no but this is great so so you've been working on a paper recently Mm -hmm. and you've been sending us papers what's the general focus um of these papers like what's what's the thesis So the paper itself is called a critically appraised topic. It's a very small, condensed, basically like a summary that clinicians can use. It's got to be less than 10 pages. And it's a, it summarizes a very small area of research and says like, this works, you should use it. This is how you apply it. But the thing is, that's really funny that we found it's actually using the psychological intervention programs. There's only 14 studies that actually um, are, have been, but they've been reviewed by five different other review papers with their own set of authors. The main uh, article that we're using has all 14 studies included that were also like disseminated in different papers as well. And so it just covers like the different areas that I told you, like cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, imagery, things like that, and have shown that it actually decreases injury rates when they're used. So the paper is basically saying how to reduce injury risk in your athletes using a psychological intervention program. Okay. Yeah. So so to what degree then are these programs tailored to individual athletes? Obviously there's not a ton of research that's been done. So do, is it the kind of thing where you just go, okay, I have an athlete, they just sustained an injury. I want to avoid having this psychological state continue to deteriorate. So I'm just going to look at my list that Shauna just sent me. I'm going to just try the first thing and try the second thing and try the third thing. Like, is there a bit of a deeper methodology or is it is, right now? Is it just here are some things that have worked? Um, no. So actually, this is even before they've sustained an injury. So okay. this is so like right now I'm doing a FIFA 11 plus uh, injury prevention program that we use as a warm up protocol. So that's to decrease injury risk because we're getting the system Uh, the body turned on, the system prepped and primed and warmed up ready for sport on the field. 
from a physical standpoint. I mean, there's a little mental aspect because you're kind of like getting in the zone, right? But as a part of like an actual psychological intervention to prevent injuries from happening in general, not after they sustain one and preventing the psychological decline. It's what can we do for athletes as a whole, whether they are already uh, experiencing symptoms or they would be clinically healthy uh, according to a questionnaire. We're going to implement this program with all the athletes on the team. And like my further studies are going to look at before and after like questionnaires that have to do with like quality of life or mindfulness or Mm -hmm. other aspects and see if they improve just by being involved in this intervention. So that's what the research is surrounding is like they put this intervention in place with a couple of teams, whether they were at risk or not. And the intervention decreased their risk of injury because the control group had more injuries than the intervention group. Gotcha. Yeah. So do you want to maybe run us through, like, let's say, let's say us as listeners, we are athletes. Could you show us what, like, what that battery of tests would be, what the evaluations would look like? So there were only three studies done that actually looked at risk athletes, and they used like specific questionnaires to determine if they were at risk, which is basically a threshold of scores on like a depression scale or an anxiety scale. Okay. Um, and then they would collect those athletes and put them in an intervention program. But the majority of the studies used all athletes, and they basically use like a mindfulness in sport questionnaire. And then they used a mindfulness in sport intervention program, which they found that most successful was about uh, three times a week for six weeks, um, meeting with the sports psychologists and doing the training. And then at the end of that six weeks or at the end of the season, they found a better improvement on scores with also like decreased injuries with an improvement in performance as well. Okay. All right. So we've already seen that um, even if you take basically a short period of time as a primer, that's Mm -hmm. then going to have effects all throughout the season. Yes. And then they've done also like a three month and a six month follow up. And there were improvements uh, after three and six months as well. Okay. Uh, So is this a new field? I don't think so. The original like stress injury model came out in the 80s. Okay. But that's why like it's it. It goes back decades, but there's only a handful of studies. And okay, wait, wait, wait. So the stress, the, the original stress injury model, what did mm-hmm. that look like? Was it, was it completely bare bones? Like what was the, what was the central part of that? Apart from well, stress mean, causes essentially, Yeah, essentially it was, it's a, it's a bi-directional model. It, it was more theoretical than anything just to explore the, possibility that stress has a physiological effect on the body which can inhibit certain things on the field Um, and so they kept exploring that and then until recently when mindfulness was introduced Introduced. yeah yeah, which is actually kind of like outside the model so um, yeah that's basically what this theory has always been on Uh, they haven't actually tested like in studies that have looked at implementing injury prevention programs, they haven't looked at the, they haven't measured any psychological, like physiological marker, but I know that there's relationship between like cortisol and stretch. So like cortisol right. levels increase stress. So you have brain interruptions on that level. But so there's nothing then about, about dopamine levels, serotonin levels. In yeah. just your general, not athlete related studies. Yes. 
non-athletes related studies of injury prevention no non-athlete studies of how stress affects your physiological self yeah okay so well there's a niche right there yeah looking at the oh that's what uh, i would that's what i would exactly that's what you would this is a plan for you yes i would love to do that okay all right obviously not right now no right now now no um, Probably not for another year, by the looks of it. So okay, we'll okay. So that's yeah. kind of like the 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 short to long term goal. So you just started your PhD this September, right? Yes. So this will be a few more years for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, what is what is the trajectory of your of your program look like right now? Have you kind of set out a series of experiments and studies that you're going to be doing already, or are you still in the preliminary phases? Um, no, we're definitely in the preliminary phases. This paper was kind of like my one first project. Um, the implementation of the prevention programs that I'm doing now with the sports teams was to kind of bridge the gap between our um, kinesiology department and the athletics department. So for me to be over there and creating the relationships with the teams and the players is kind of a big deal. Um, so we're just basically trying to foster the relationship so that way I can start in, uh, implementing more projects with them. And as far as this next year goes, because I'm not really sure what the sports season is going to look like, especially with contact sports. So without an actual sports season to measure the number of injuries, like it's going to make it extremely difficult to kind of implement a prevention program. But what I would like to do and kind of where my brainstorming is going is um, still doing mindfulness training, but virtually and doing like before and after questionnaires. Um, And then if they're doing their strength and conditioning, seeing if they uh, like self-reported improvements or progress, uh, things that we might be able to measure biomechanically through video uh, analysis or something like that. So yeah. And then I also, I met with the mindfulness director or the director of the mindfulness research lab at McGill. Um, And so he was helping me brainstorm some ideas that hopefully I'll be able to bring him on and collaborate with as well. So that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that all sounds great. Uh, apart from the fact that there's a bit of uncertainty right now in terms of whether they're people to actually study. Yes, exactly. Everyone's, everyone's kind of on pause. Uh, so you're, you're, you're predominantly doing your PhD at Concordia, but you said there's also collaboration uh, with McGill as well. Um, I would like to, I, I'm not really sure how the collaboration works. Um, My supervisors and I haven't really like sat down and planned everything yet because we're basically just trying to get this paper finished and submitted and then we're going to have like our sit down and I think what I would like to do is try and get all of my coursework done this year if we're not going to have like an active sports season and then also I have to do my qualifying exams which helps me transition from a student to a candidate. So it's a big year ahead if even if we don't have athletics involved. So yeah. So how does the qualification sta- uh, stages work? Like how do, is it, is it like a, some like oral, oral defense type things or written exams? I think it's a case? series of written exams. I haven't really got the full like lowdown on that okay. uh, process yet. Only just hearsay from my colleague who's in his third year. Okay, great. Yeah. And so the dynamic in your lab right now, uh, is everybody basically working on injury prevention or is that your niche? Well, I have two, so I have two supervisors. One supervisor, Dr. Dumont, he focuses on injury prevention. Um, My colleague focuses on, he's doing a program, it's called the Child First Program, and it's basically a screening process for youth athletes ages 7 to 12, I believe. 
um, and kind of like can identify youth athletes that might be at risk for increased uh, injury. Um, and then from a psychological perspective, no, 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 just physical. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, it's a, it's a, we, it's an in-person, they do a series of physical, um, tests and then we grade them. And then it basically is saying like, you're kind of, I don't know if you've ever heard of FMS functional movement screen. Yes. Um, I did that back when I was rowing at Dawson college. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's, it's essentially the same thing, but for a different age group. And so they are validating it and building the research surrounding that. So that's all of his uh, dissertation. And then my colleague, Alex, who's in his first year with me, he was uh, collaborative on that. So he's also building off of the child first screening project. Okay. So you're like the uh, psychological black sheep in the lab. Yes. Everyone else is working on the physical, like the the FMS, the, the functional movement screening. There's no psychological aspect from what I recall. No. It was more like, no. okay, let's see, let's see if your right hip is higher than your left hip. And let's yes. see the alignment of your like your like lumbar vertebrae. And let's, and let's see, see how, how you move. Exactly. Yeah. Let's see how you mm-hmm. jump and walk. Yep. Yeah. And pat your head and rub your tummy. <laughs> <laughs> For yeah. Is that actually part of it? Yeah. No. Way. No. <laughs> okay. I just always tell I always tell an athlete that I'm about to do a movement screen. I say, "Okay, I'm going to make you pat your head and rub your tummy for the next 45 minutes." <laughs> okay. That's that's some endurance right there. I mean, if you can get Exactly. That, I mean, you're holding mental. your hand and you have to concentrate the entire time. So that would actually probably improve, uh, mental and physical. Mental. Mm-hmm. If you can get some additional funding, you could probably run your own your own research <laughs> experiment where you have individuals from age 7 to 85 pat their stomach and rub their head or whatever. <laughs> And, and then give a threshold of like whether they're in performance level or not. <laughs> exactly. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then test five years down the line. <laughs> can you even really like, can you identify in like a seven-year-old, let's say that they would be like, let's say they have a tremendous rating on their, on their FMS. Like, mm-hmm. do you then say, ah, yes, Tommy, you are very physically bilaterally symmetric time for you to go pro. Like, does it work that way? Oh, it's so funny. Uh, my goodness. Youth feeder programs are like the epitome of my uh, career right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's wow. uh, like kind of how the injury prevention started because there's a lot of focus on like sports specificity and uh, year-long uh, training for just youth kids that shouldn't be like specifying in their sport yet. That's yes. a good point. I like what you just said, which is that you shouldn't be, or at least maybe this is what I understood, is that you shouldn't be forcing a seven-year-old to go down a specific path yet no not yet okay. what developmentally is it's really it's detrimental okay right because i would say i would say high school high school okay mm-hmm. so like yeah double that age yes um, exactly well almost more yeah like even yeah. freshman years like kind of iffy because they're new in high school you want to get them like uh, familiar with the environment and not really just head on give them one sport i would say sophomore sophomore year is like okay we want you to go to college. Like sophomore is year two. Kelly. Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. Sorry. In the For us States. Canadians over here, we don't yeah. know what's going on here. <laughs> Secondaire two. Yep. Cycle étape deux. My question was, I guess, just kind of an observation that I made. Even, even like I started rowing when I was seventeen, mm-hmm. and or eighteen, and even now I have like muscular imbalance because. In, in the rowing that I was, there are two kinds of rowing, there's sculling and there's sweeping. 
which is either mm -hmm. you have one or you have two. I was doing primarily sweeping, which just had a single or. And so right now my left latissimus dorsi is larger than <laughs> nice. my right and has been ever since. Mm -hmm. My strength on my left side, because that's where most of the pulling came from, is actually greater. Yep. And I mean, it, it's been seven years since I've been rowing and I still have that imbalance. So I, I would imagine that that, that imbalance would, would compound so much more in someone who was like 10 years old. If you had, yes. you know, for yeah. I, I think basically every, every sport I can think of has some element of handedness. Yes. It, right? Yeah. Whether it's soccer, uh, rugby, tennis. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe running is the only one that doesn't, except like if you're doing sprinting, I know that you start on a block and that would be one like versus the other, but apart from, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. So yeah, so major takeaway here for the listeners, if you have children or you will someday, don't get them into a sport too early. Just yeah. hold out, let them discover what's happening out there. Uh, yep, exactly. <laughs> wow, that's great. Um, well, and I think, and I, I mean, just in general, like you said that you're kind of like overly strong on one side and that's, uh, that's normal. I mean, the woes of being an athlete long-term definitely follow you and haunt you down the road, but we can do as much as we can to help prevent those kind of long-term differences by making sure that you're part of like a regimented strength training program where you're addressing those imbalances, especially if you're stronger on one side, making sure that you might be a little bit more strength training on the other to help balance it out. But, mm -hmm. you know, that's just speaking from my personal point of view is like you should be doing training both sides. Absolutely. That's totally fair. And there was, you know, like I remember my coach was saying at the beginning, you should actually try sweeping on both sides. Gotcha. See which one yeah. feels better and then eventually yeah. go into one. But I actually ended up okay. developing forearm tendonitis. Um, oh, yeah. Rowing on the opposite side. And so oh. I ended up having to actually switch because of that. So I, I, yeah. I kind of injured myself into developing the muscle <laughs> into the one master. Yep. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, yeah. And were you strength training though? Did you have a program with a coach in the gym? Uh, yes, it wasn't, I, I guess I, I probably didn't follow it as strictly as I could have. This was mm -hmm. like, this was, this was like CJEP. Like we were, we were competitive, but we weren't crazy competitive. You know, this wasn't, if you looked at my functional movement screening, you probably would have told me to quit while I was ahead. Um, no, <laughs> no, you know. those are the ones were like, yay, work. <laughs> <laughs> I remember doing an exercise where I would, I would be standing like chin to the wall, facing the wall. Uh -huh. And I would have my, my hand basically by my shoulder, like a uh -huh. chicken wing. And I would have to crawl oh. my fingers up the wall. Yep. That yep. was when I sustained a lat injury. Turns out I've, I've injured my body about five or six times and every single time is on the left side, which is well, hilarious. There's <laughs> definitely a neurological link with that one. Oh yeah? <laughs> yes. Darn. Because <laughs> I have all my injuries on my right side. Whoa, actually look at that. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, for the listeners, uh, if you have all of your injuries on one side or another, please drop me a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. I'd be happy to, uh, to create an Excel spreadsheet to see what the, uh, what the split is. Is it more left? Is it more right? We'll see what happens. Until then, was, I have a question. Yeah. Which is, what did you think would be the highlight of your PhD so far? And what actually ended up being the highlight? Oh, those are good questions. So what I thought would be the highlight, 
is honestly doing some groundbreaking research well and working with uh, college students and athletes and helping them kind of develop a better idea of how to train how to take advantage of injury prevention strategies and the resources they have available because even in college that still can be very sparse and unknown what ended up being the highlight like there there have been so many good things and fun stuff happening it's um it definitely that first semester was really rough uh to kind of get in the back of in the groove of things and partly didn't have expectations laid out for me so mm-hmm. the not knowing game uh also imposter syndrome is a real thing <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, do you want to just quickly explain imposter syndrome for the listeners Sure. So imposter syndrome is kind of lacking a little bit of uh, confidence in your ability and your knowledge uh, to think that you're worth the title that you're kind of going after the education. There were a lot of times where I was second guessing myself and not really sure that I was doing the right thing. And then later to find out like I have several friends going through PhD processes or have gone, had those one-on-ones where it's just like, nope, that's normal. Everybody goes through that. So I was mm. like, oh, okay. So even though I feel like I might be screwing up or not doing good and well enough, uh, I'm actually right on track. <laughs> that's great <laughs> so to that's hear. Good. Yeah. And yeah, you're, I mean, like you said, definitely not alone in that imposter syndrome is named a syndrome, not just like imposter thingy, because it, it is <laughs> yeah. a documented uh, experience across the board. Mm-hmm. So if you're an undergraduate listening right now, you might have even experienced this to some degree if you decided to embark on undergraduate thesis or try out something really difficult out of your comfort zone. And so yeah. it's totally, totally fine to feel like you might be in over your head a little bit, um, but that's totally natural. Exactly. Yeah. So. so Dealing with that was fun. I wouldn't say it was a highlight, but... <laughs> I guess, yeah, we didn't really get Part the actual it. highlight, but it seems like you've got a lot of things going on outside, like... If you're being honest, would you say that the highlight was actually like something that happened outside, outside of, of your th- yes of your th- yes. PhD? Okay. Yeah, th- I mean, I I anticipate there's going to be more highlights to do with my PhD. I think the the classwork, the course load, and the first year kind of like adapting was not necessarily a highlight, but has to be done right. I think the highlight outside of it was being my first year in Quebec in a new country. Um, kind of being able to enjoy skiing, building my relationship with my boyfriend. And yeah, it's just been a whirlwind of a year, to be honest, because I didn't get here until August. So yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I've lived here my whole life and the transition to starting the master's de- my master's degree in September was also like, whoa, okay, all right, new things happening right now. So to yep. move countries, although I, I remember you mentioned that you spent some time in Bend, Oregon. Yeah, oh yeah, I was there this last year before I made the move, and that's where I met my boyfriend. Okay. The reason, he's the reason I'm here initially, and then uh, I got the PhD secondarily. <laughs> Shout out to Dominic. Yeah. <laughs> getting getting Sean of that PhD. Whoop whoop. <laughs> yeah, he was a big kind of like, have you ever looked at Canadian schools? I literally said no. <laughs> so well, to. You're at Concordia University in the gorgeous Montreal, Quebec. Yeah, and that's another thing is I'm not a city person. <laughs> so okay. that was another adapt- adaptation in its own. 
Well, I'm sure you, you, you more than make up for it by getting out of town often enough to work on uh, distance running, strength training, hiking, backpacking, skiing, snowboarding, mountain biking, water sports, travel, lots of reading coffee dates, and a good rye whiskey or craft IPA. So as long as you got all those things, I think you're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of them in one day is a good day. <laughs> yes. You also mentioned that you love sports, which has become abundantly obvious. And the yep. colors, this is how you put it, the colors of courage, bravery, motivation, and support it brings out in people. So I, I, yes. I think that's beautiful. There is one more Thank question you. that I'd like to ask you before we sign off for the day, sure. which is, uh, this is something that I, I believe I've, I've asked, if not all, then most of my guests so far. How would you describe yourself as a person and as a student separately and do those words overlap oh those are those are great questions jeremy okay as a person I, if i were to use one word it would definitely be passionate mm -hmm. um, and as a research student passion has to come has to play a part otherwise why are you researching a boring mm -hmm. subject um, but is passion the word you would use to describe yourself as a student passionate? As a student, I would say curious. Okay. Um, but I'm passionately curious in both aspects of life. In my passionately curious. There you go. You bring them all together. That's how we start our way. Passionately you have curious. to meld the, you have to make up words. It's new research strategies. I, so my my linguistics background makes me just love the fact that you can take two adjectives turn one into an adverb and then slap it on um passionate curious passionately curious it's incredible that we can use the english language to make that. i did a yeah i did i actually did that in my paper have when i was explaining an aspect of mindfulness and i like totally forgot what it was but it had to be like presently aware Mm -hmm. Or like in the aspect, in the realm of like being present, like conscious. Consciously, mindfully, presently something, aware. Something like that. Yeah. He's slapping <laughs> I on linked, the I, I linked a bunch of things together. Yeah. Good. Congratulations on that linking with your, with your, uh, with your curiously passionate nature. <laughs> flip it around however it works. That's right. Good. Well, it's been really nice chatting. Um, I Thanks, unfortunately Jim. have to go run and tutor some, uh, some grade seven math students. Looking forward oh, to that. Yeah, uh, I'm going to ask them uh, to quickly run through a quick uh, functional movement screening to ensure that they aren't uh, at risk. The best, one, the best one for kids is the 180 single leg turn. So you bounce on one leg and have them twist and like just face the opposite way and yeah. land again and see how that how, that see how the balance how works. Balance awareness, see if they actually make the complete turn. Yep. On one leg. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. We'll see if we could do that over Zoom and then I'll have to bring you back the results and that'll be your second side project. Woohoo! Also, I'll get some funding for that. <laughs> Amazing. So awesome. uh, before we leave, uh, quick plug for what you're doing outside uh, academia right now. Oh, so um, my business movement matters is virtual currently. I'm training one-on-one -on -one athletes, building programs to help all levels, all skills, and all ages. Uh, not just high-performance athletes. I've got a couple of collegiate runners. I've got a couple of distance runners about my age, if not a little bit older. Um, I'm also going to be taking on an over 60 client. Honestly, oh. it just depends on 
it just, all you need is a passion for sport and wanting to excel in your activity and uh, you're a perfect candidate to build training programs. And I think everybody should be doing a regimented training program to help make them move better, be more body, body aware. And um, so there's a Facebook yeah. page for movement matters, right? Where people can check you out. Yep. It's movement matters on Facebook. And then my Instagram handle is mvmt.matters. Okay. So Instagram and Facebook so far, uh, website under construction. <laughs> okay, perfect. Let's keep people um, abreast of all the developments there. Uh, once again, yep. if you uh, like what you hear, drop me a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. And if you are a graduate student yourself and would like to come on and talk about your research, you can reach me at the same address. So hey. looking forward yep. to hearing back from everyone and I will catch you all on the next episode. Thanks again, Sean. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.